Would you turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We wanted to, um, I wanted to have this opportunity to move away from Matthew 24 and begin to talk about in the next couple of weeks some subjects concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to be looking at that this morning. If you put your finger in ver- on verse 13, and we'll look at uh, these, these scriptures in just a moment, but we do pray that you would stay with us for our uh, business meeting. I don't believe that we really have a whole lot of new business, but we will be discussing a little bit. I'll tell you some things about concerning our Southern Baptist Convention and where it's going and what's happening within it and uh, things for you to pray about and for us to discuss um, concerning what we will do in response because of the things that are happening within the convention and uh, just uh, take some time to think about those things. So if you would be with us, stay with us for business meeting after our service. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven, with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We want to talk today about this secret rapture using these verses and a couple, a few other passages of Scripture dealing with the rapture of the church. So I want to then kind of give you the definition of what the rapture is. The rapture is an event where Christians, both living and dead, will be caught up to meet Jesus in the air and then be taken to heaven. This event... According to those who believe this, as far as what I'm speaking from is the dispensational viewpoint, this definition, is both secret and invisible, and no one knows that it takes place until after the event. That is the definition that we are given from a dispensational premillennial position, which has taken hold of just about Uh, all of evangelicalism over the last 100 years but is beginning to wane as people actually begin to study what this means and in fact there's even disagreements among those that are dispensationalists first of all let me give you what there there are they're divided into five different categories There's the pre-tribulationalist. That is, the rapture takes place before the tribulation. Now, in Matthew 24, we talked about the great tribulation. If you remember, let me refresh your memory if you don't. Jesus talks about a great tribulation that is going to occur, and he uses time indicators 
time events where it says when you see these things, when this happens in this generation. And I've told you personally, I believe that that great tribulation is in our past. It's not something I believe that we're going to experience in the future. But according to dispensationalists, you have a pre-tribulation rapture that takes place before the great tribulation because they believe the great tribulation is still in the future right after the rapture. But then you have post-tribulationists, that rapture takes place after the tribulation. You have mid-tribulation, that after three and a half years, the rapture takes place in the middle of the tribulation. Then you have what they call the pre-wrath rapture. This is Christians are taken just before God pours out his wrath on an unbelieving world near the end of the tribulation. And now you have a minority report that just came up recently in recent years it's called the partial rapture view where only christians who are watching and waiting for christ's return will be raptured so in other words if you have not been watching and waiting and you've just been going on with your life uh, as it is you know eating drinking being married giving in marriage all kinds of stuff then and you're not watching you don't get to go just thought i'd warn you about that so now here's the big question this is a question that, that really kind of swayed me and helped me move into a different direction. It was this. The big question happens to be, shouldn't we find at least one verse in the Bible that describes Jesus is coming for his church to take us all away before the great tribulation and then Jesus returning to earth with his church after a seven-year tribulation period to defeat the Antichrist and set up his reign for a thousand years? Should we not find a verse or a group of verses that specifically say these things? Folks, here's what I want you to understand. There is no single verse or group of verses that specifically describes any of these five rapture positions. And I want to give you a quote by one of the leading proponents of dispensational premillennialism that wrote the, the book series Left Behind. This is what he says. You may not be able to read this. I'll read it to you. One objection to the pre-tribulation rapture is that not one passage of Scripture teaches the two aspects of his second coming separated by the tribulation. Now notice what he says. This is true. But then no one passage teaches a post-trib or mid-trib rapture either. No single verse specifically states Christ will come before the tribulation. On the other hand, no single passage teaches he will not come before the tribulation or that he will come in the middle or at the end of the tribulation. Any such explicit declaration would end the debate immediately. Now, I want you all to think about that. Think about what he says. No single passage teaches that he will not come. So I started thinking, what does that sound like? So let me give you an example of what that kind of logic says. A husband says, 
I just heard Donald Trump say he is coming to Tarkington and he's going to bring every family $100,000. Well, wife responds, did Trump really say he's coming to Tarkington? The husband says, yes. And the wife says, and did he say he was bringing every family $100,000? And the husband says, no, but he didn't say he wasn't going to bring us some money. And the wife, she says that, okay, you know, on that. Now, understand something, and this, that Marv Rosenthal, who was an evangelist to Jewish people, stated he could no longer hold to this, this viewpoint because he determined that the Bible didn't teach it. And he read John Walvoord's book. If you don't know who John Walvoord is, let me give you just a little history behind that. He taught at Dallas Theological Seminary. He wrote several books defending the dispensational viewpoint. He was heralded as one of the big teachers along him with C.S. Schofield, with uh, Lewis Perry Schaefer, with Charles Ryrie, John Walvoord. In fact, John Walvoord came out with a book in the 60s talking about the Arab... Middle East peace crisis. And he postulated all these kind of things in that book about why Jesus was going to be returning based upon the events that were taking place in the Middle East and with the oil and with the Arabs fighting against Israel. Well, they had new wars broken out, and so in the 70s he rewrote it, in the 80s he rewrote it, and in the 90s he rewrote it based upon what he saw in the news. It was repeated in these kind of things. This is John Walvoord. He's been heralded as one of their huge, huge teachers. Well, he read John Walvoord's book, The Rapture Question, and it includes 50 arguments in support of a pre-trib rapture. And to his, his shock, he found no biblical text to support the doctrine. And so he states, not once among the 50 arguments does this godly Christian leader cite one biblical text that explicitly teaches pre-tribulation rapturism. Not once. And this was not an oversight. The reason for the omission of any pre-tribulation rapture text is clear. There are none. And Walvoord's own content, uh, comment helps substantiate the fact. He wrote, that is Walvoord, it is therefore not too much to say that the rapture question is determined more by ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, than eschatology, the doctrine of last things. There, is simply, there simply is no explicit exegetical evidence for pre-tribulation rapturism. That's coming from the man who wrote the book about the rapture. There's just none there. So, we go back to our scripture, and we look at the scripture. This is what we have to understand, that this rapture thing, this is one of the main verses, main passages that they use to say there is going to be a secret rapture, okay? So, we go back through it again. Paul is writing to the Thessal Thessalonians. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed. Some of your translations say, we don't want you to be ignorant. Or 
as East Texas says, ignorant. We don't want you to be ignorant about those who have died. This is what he's doing. What was happening in 1 Thessalonians is that people were being told that the resurrection had already happened. And they said, well, what about our loved ones? What about the ones that have already died? If the resurrection has already happened and these guys get left behind here, what's going to happen? So Paul's addressing this kind of things. He says, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who fall asleep. He was comforting them with those words to say when Jesus comes again or when someone dies, they're going to go be with the Lord. But when Jesus comes again, the general resurrection, Jesus comes again, we're all going to be going up and we're all going to be with the Lord. And if you notice in verse 17, it says, so we'll always be with the Lord. Now, LaHay, Tim LaHay says, this clearly teaches the rapture viewpoint. But again, I want to state this. This teaching did not happen until 1830. No one, if you could go back and you can read it, and you can even read some of the dispensationalists. H.A. Ironside, by the way, an old preacher and one who adopted this, even said, I have searched and I have searched. I cannot find one sermon. I cannot find one commentary. I cannot find anybody from the annals of history that actually preach and teach a pre-tribulation rapture. But Ironside believed it anyway. Interesting. It didn't. So there's a question that we have to ask ourselves in this thing is that if no one knew this, you know, why didn't anyone see this before 1830? Well, the purpose, again, is the passage is that the Thessalonians would have hope that their dead loved ones who knew Christ were not going to be left behind at the general resurrection. So we have to ask ourselves the question, when we go to the context and we look in the context, the whole book of Thessalonians, we read it, we have to ask these questions. Where in this passage is there a mention of a seven-year tribulation period following the rapture? That's real big with dispensationalists. In other words, we're going to have the rapture, then we're going to have this tribulation. Where in that passage does it say it? You don't have it in there. Where in this passage is there a statement of Jesus reversing course after seven years and coming back to earth? Because that's part of the pre-tribulational belief. Jesus comes in the air. People are caught up. He takes them back into heaven. After seven years, he brings them back. In other words, that's two second comings, basically. And what we have to ask is, where is the silent, invisible, and secret coming of the Lord mentioned in this passage? You have your hands there. I want you to look at your fingers in that passage. I want you to look at verse 16. It says, For the Lord himself will, deliver, will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God. If anything, that is not silent, dear friends. That is not silent whatsoever, and yet we're told that this is secretive and this is silent and nobody's going to know. What Paul was re relating to, what Paul was teaching, dear friends, was this. Whenever Roman armies had a victory, 
they would camp one mile outside of Rome. They would send messengers into Rome and say, we are on the outskirts, come join us for the victory celebration. And people would come out, not everyone, but people who were designated to come out would go out to the camp to meet with the Romans. The Romans then would shout a command to march into Rome. They would play trumpets announcing that the victor has come. And the people would dance and they would sing and they would throw all kinds of things up in the air and they would celebrate with the conquering ones while those who were conquered were being paraded into the streets in chains. This is the concept that Paul is writing about. He is saying, this is what's going to happen at the end of the age. This is what's going to happen when Jesus does come again. It's going to be loud. It's going to be a celebration. He's calling his people to come up as he comes down. He's going to do this, and it says that we're going to be caught up, and then he establishes his kingdom, and we're going to be forever with the Lord. That is what Paul is alluding to in 1 Thessalonians. So we go back to, to Anthony Hokema. He in the Bible and the future, in that book, that he states this. He's a theologian, by the way. He says, what this passage clearly teaches is that at the time of the Lord's return, all believing dead, dead in Christ, will be raised, and all believers who are still alive will be transformed and glorified, as found in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, and 52. Then these two groups will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Then he goes on and says this. What these words do not teach is after this meeting in the air, the Lord will reverse his direction, go back to heaven, taking the raised and the transformed members of the church with him. To be sure, verse 17 ends with the words, and so we shall always be with the Lord. But Paul does not say where we shall be with the Lord. The idea that after meeting the Lord in the air, we shall be with him for seven years and later for a thousand years in the air above the earth is pure inference and nothing more. Nothing more. Then again, we have another one that we have in the scriptures. It says that they allude to this as being reason that we're going to have the rapture. It says, I tell you this, this is Corinthians chapter 15. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we, sh we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, the mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the question again, are Christians going to be raised? There's no doubt about that. The dispute is over when the event takes place and what happens afterwards. Again, we have to ask ourselves the question, in that passage, keeping everything in the context, it says nothing of a secret rapture before a great tribulation. You won't find the rise of the Antichrist, you won't find God's program for the Jews or an earthly millennial reign of Christ. 
This passage, like 1 Thessalonians 4, deals with the general resurrection. So what's the topic? What's the topic of, of 1 Corinthians 15? This is what it is. The resurrection of Christ and what it means to believers. That's what that verse, those verses mean. Because it says in verse 14, 13 and 14, but if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith is in vain. That whole discussion is about the resurrection of Christ and our resurrection. If Christ wasn't raised, we're not going to be raised. But since he's been raised, we're going to be raised in the last days. There is no discussion of the two comings of the Lord Jesus Christ in this situation. There's not at all separated by a tribulation period. So I want you to look at the sequence just real quickly of this. Here's in chapter 15. What do we have first? Christ's resurrection. Each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Then we have a believer's resurrection. After the, that, those who are Christ at his coming. This is his second coming at the end of the age. Then, it says, then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and authority. You see, in the general resurrection, folks, everyone gets to go and there's going to be a judgment. There's going to be a judgment at that time. Listen to John chapter, chapter 5, 28, 29. It says, do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. What Jesus was teaching is that believers and unbelievers are going to be raised at the same time at the time of his coming, not separated by seven years or by a thousand years. In fact, when I'm talking about the seven years, where in the world did that come from? We're going to look at that next week. We're going to look at Daniel because in Daniel he talks about the 70 weeks. But for some reason, the only ones that have ever divided that there is a gap between 69 weeks and 70 weeks is those who hold to a dispensational pre-tribulation uh, thought process. Somehow a gap came in when Jesus Christ came. All of a sudden there was a gap in the plan. There was a gap and therefore then we are now in that week and it's going to start the 70th week whenever he comes and raptures his church. We're going to talk about that next week and see if that's what really the scripture teaches so that you can see where they get these things. And we're also going to look at the Antichrist. You're going to look at that kind of thing. But... What we have to look at and understand is this is what Jesus was teaching. Believers and unbelievers are raised at the same time. If we go again to Matthew chapter 13, here's what it says now. And it's going to take a little while to read it, but if you want to turn there in your Bible, it's found in 24, verses 24 through 30 in Matthew chapter 13. He says, put another parable, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping... His enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master's house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, 
then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. If you go down a little bit later in the passage, remember, never just read a verse by itself. You've got to read the verses before and the verses after. Jesus explains what this means. Listen to what he says. Then he left the crowds, went into the house. The disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest, listen, is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels... And they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, what is he teaching? According to this parable... Both the tares and the wheat do what? They grow together. But who is dealt with first? It's the tares. When Jesus comes, believers and unbelievers, as they are raised, those who have done good to righteousness, those who have done evil to death and hell, we understand who gets the first judgment. It is the tares. If anyone is snatched away, guess who it is? It's the tares. It's the tares. However, the proponent of this, C.I. Schofield in his Schofield Reference Bible, reverses the order. He says in his notes on page 1016, if you want to go look there, at the end of this age, verse 40, the tares are set apart for burning, but first... Listen to what it says. But first, the wheat is gathered into the barn. Now, is that what we just read in that scripture? The tares were gathered, and it says, Then the wheat will begin to shine like the sun. So we have to understand that perhaps there could be some faulty manipulation of some of these things to make the system fit. And that's what we see, and that's what we will see in, in the next couple of weeks. Now, I want to give you just another theory about this rapture. Since the church is not mentioned in chapters 4 through 19 of Revelation, the church must be raptured to heaven. Have you ever heard that? We have the messages to the church, Revelation 2 and chapter uh, 3. According to the dispensational system, every one of those churches represents an age. 
it represents an age. There's the golden age. There's the age of this. There's the age of that. Every one of those churches represents an age. Now, when you read it at face value, it says to the church in, right to the church in Philadelphia, right to the church in Laodicea, right to the church in Sardis, right to the church in Ephesus. They were literal churches. And in fact, archaeologists have found the mail route that went to each of these churches as people went along in the Roman times in delivering of packages and delivering of mail and delivering of whatever it is. They all went to these cities where these churches were. They were literal churches. But according to the dispensational system, they are representing different ages. But in the scripture, in the passage, you cannot find that whatsoever. Now, once you get to the chapter 4, you don't see the church mentioned from chapter 4 through 19. Therefore, they assume that the rapture has happened and that they're all gone away. And what 4 through 19 is dealing with is the great tribulation and the plan for Israel. Now, what I want us to do, though, is to apply this logic to other books of the Bible. If we're going to remain consistent and use that same kind of hermeneutic, we have to see, is the word church used in other books? Well, guess what? It's not used in Mark, Luke, John, 2 Timothy, Titus, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1 John, 2 John, Jude, and not until the 16th chapter of Romans. Logically, then, the church must be gone as well when the writers pen those books. Correct? That's what they're saying about 4 through 19. The church is gone. I guess Mark was writing to what? Luke, John, because the word church is not mentioned. So it begs the question, should biblical interpretation and theology be based on word counts? If that is true, we got to throw out the book of Esther. Did you know that God is never mentioned in the book of Esther? Never. Throw it out. In fact, we have some liberal scholars who want to throw it out. They think it doesn't belong anywhere in the canon of the Bible. Throw it out. We don't need it because God is not mentioned. So if dispensationalists believe that chapters 4 through 19 describe the time of the great tribulation where Israel is in view. But I want you to look at this. Remember, we're going to look at word counts. We're going to look at word counts. The word Israel is only used once in the chapters, and that's not until 714. So why is this a problem? Because we're told that the church is used 19 times, the word church, in the first three chapters. Therefore, it's very significant that after chapter 3, the word church is not used again. If that is so, shouldn't we expect to find the word Israel more often than one time in these chapters if all these chapters are about Israel? Shouldn't we find the word Israel used at least 19 times? So we can't go by word counts to surmise our eschatological thinking nor our theology. So what we have to do is go back and say, what really is of importance? What was the emphasis of Paul, the apostle preaching? 1 Corinthians 1.23, Paul says, I preach Christ and I preach him crucified. 
in Acts 13, the whole section there is saying, this is Jesus Christ whom rose from the dead whom you crucified. In Acts 17, it's another treatise on Jesus and the resurrection. First Peter chapter 1 says, we have a living hope. We've been born again through a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. When we go over to the book of Acts again, why was Paul on trial? It says, now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees, the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, the son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. What was their emphasis? Jesus, him crucified and raised on the third day giving us hope as Christians that we will also be raised. So when you look at it and you read the sermons of the apostles, none of the apostles preaching do you hear a sermon on a two-stage coming of Jesus separated by a seven-year tribulation period to the crowds that hear it. Why? Where's the hope? The hope of the church is the resurrection of the dead, not the rapture of the church. It's the resurrection of the dead. So, dear folks, how in the world should we apply something like this? Well, I know that there are going to be some of you who are going to say, I still believe in the rapture of the church. That's fine. That's fine. It's nothing to separate over. It's basically down here on the third tier level of beliefs. But what we do need to understand is this, is that people continue to this day looking at newspapers and the events that are happening in the newspapers to determine what the Bible has to say concerning prophecies. We have a conflict right now. You know what's happening. Israel and Gaza going back and forth and back and forth. And don't you think, don't, please don't think that no one out there is addressing this from the Bible prophecy group. They are. They're beginning to start to say, oh, man, here it is. This is beginning the thing of Armageddon. All the nations are going to come against Israel, and we're all going to meet in Armageddon, and we're all going to have all these kind of things and all these missiles and military things, all these things that are mentioned in the book of Revelation where it says locusts are going to come up, and these are going to happen, and all sorts are going to happen. Those mean helicopters. Those mean missiles. Those mean these things. All this stuff is coming to fruition, and we're in the last days. You're going to see those kind of things happen and happen and happen. And what people will do, because I promise you they have already done it, they sit down and they pray, Lord, come quickly and do nothing to expand the kingdom of God because they believe it's all over. As I heard one preacher jokingly say, I want to preach you my favorite sermon. Why recycle when it's all going to burn? Believing that the Lord was going to burn up everything with fire, so why in the world be involved in doing something that helps save the planet? Because it's all going to burn. People will do that, believing in something that they hold dear and near because that's what they've been taught, just like I was taught. It was what I was taught in Sunday school. It was what I was taught from the table at my father's table when he would pull out the charts and pull out all the things that were written and they would say this, 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 and this. And these are all the stages, all the dispensations. This is all these things. Here's the lost tribes of Israel. Let's do these things. I even have an uncle who wrote a book trying to find the lost tribes of Israel. 
for what reason? In fact, he sat at the table after my father died, and at the funeral, he said, I've even wrote a book and researched all this stuff concerning the rapture, concerning the seventh coming, and concerning these tribes of Israel, and I still don't understand it. It could be he's going down the wrong path. Could be that actually chapter 4, and I want you to think about this, through 19 of Revelation, a highly symbolic book was written by John as he was given those visions and those things concerning what was going to happen at the fall of Jerusalem. When you begin to read it from that perspective, you're going to be seeing those things fall into place as the description is given, and especially if you couple that reading with Josephus's historical book called Wars and Rumors of Wars. He describes what happened in Jerusalem because he was there, the fall of Jerusalem, and if you read it together with chapters 4 through 19, all of a sudden you go, that makes sense. That comes together. But here's the thing, folks. Here's the thing. Whether you hold on to rapturism or not, no need to divide over it. But one thing is certain. We still have a task. What's the task? Sharing our faith. Sharing our faith. Being involved in society. Being involved locally. Being involved in some way where we're using our Christian influence to influence those things that are going on within our society in and of itself. We have to do that because our opinion based upon the word of God does matter and should matter. And we should be out telling those things and living by those principles and hopefully those principles moving people to understand that we have a message that needs to be heard. We have an influence that needs to be wielded. And things can change in that way when we get active, not sitting back waiting for something to happen. When we're called to go out and to do the work. We're called to go out and do the work. Now let me slam your toes for just a moment. Okay? If you permit me. Shepherds are called to lead the flock. But sometimes the flock has to be sheared. Okay? And I'm going to do it very politely in this regard. Ask yourself this question. When is the last time I shared my faith with anyone? When is the last time I shared my faith with anyone? I, I, this is what I mean. Not that you went and someone said, you know, hey, you saved $5 on, the, on, this, uh, on this item. And you at the counter go, oh, praise the Lord. When have you sat down with somebody and walked them through the gospel? How long has it been since you've done that? How long has it been since you've purposely watched where God may be working around you and giving you a divine appointment with somebody who is questioning spiritual things and you responded tremendously by, let me share the gospel with you. 
When is the last time that happened? So the question then becomes, why hasn't it happened? Why hasn't it happened? It's a question I ask myself. That's a question that I ask myself on a weekly basis. Have I shared Christ with anybody this week, this last two weeks, this last month? I need to share Christ. And if we don't do it intentionally, guys, guess what? We're not going to do it. We just don't. Because we get comfortable. Is Jesus coming again? Yes, he is. Are we going to be raptured? Yes, at the general resurrection. Is there going to be a secret rapture? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that we're given a commission until the point that Jesus comes back again to deliver the kingdom, just like we read in 1 Corinthians, deliver the kingdom up to God and the Father and hand it to him and where he abolishes death and we will forever and always dwell with the Lord. In the meantime, Let's get busy. Let's share our faith. Let me pray. Help us to understand it, Lord. It's such a deep subject. Sometimes it's bogged down so much, Lord, that our minds just spin. But, Lord, you wouldn't give us something that we cannot understand. So, Father, I pray that you would give us insight and give us wisdom and understanding into these things. But most of all, Lord, help us to do what you've commanded us to do and to share our faith with those who are lost. Father, I pray for this congregation. I pray, oh Lord, that you would bring across their path someone they can witness to, whether it's a family member, child, a friend next door, or even at the grocery store at work. Lord, do a work so that they may be able to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And I ask it in Jesus' name.